I'm going to back up in our reading to verse 10. I'll read verses 10 through 20, but our focus will be verses 17 to 20. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your Word as we've heard from the psalm, as we've heard from the book of Numbers, as now we hear from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, we believe that your word is powerful. And we believe, because you've told us in your word, we believe that you are pleased to use your word to the sanctification of your people. And so we ask that you would do that for us during this time. We know that there are many places where we can go astray, and we can take your word and even twist it to our own destruction. We don't want to be those people. Lord, give us a clear understanding of what is written. Help us to examine our thoughts of you and of your Son. I pray that you would unite our, unite our hearts as a church body, in our worship, our adoration, our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we desire that in all things you would receive the glory and the honor. You've created all things. Everything that exists, exists to proclaim your wondrous works. And so, Lord, may we join in that chorus. If we look outside, we can see all of creation singing your praise. I pray that there would be none found here more rebellious than the trees and the rocks and the animals. I pray that there would be none who refuse to worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, by way of introduction, I want to sort of uh, set before you a truth that underlines the text that we've read, and it's, it's, it's this. If you are a Christian, 
one of the evidences that you have been born again is that you respond to things differently than those who are not Christians. You respond differently to sin. You respond differently to the Scriptures. You respond differently to your husband or your wife. You respond differently to circumstances in the culture, situations that present themselves in the home or at work. If you are a Christian, you don't respond to those things the way the world responds to those things. As sort of a, a case study, a text that came to my mind this morning was Ephesians 5, where Paul says, in, beginning at verse 7, Therefore do not become partakers or partners with them. That's the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, here's what he's getting at. You used to be like this, but you're not like that anymore. They're, those people, the, the sons of disobedience, they're still like that. And they're going to continue to act the way that they act because they're sons of disobedience. But if you're a Christian, you're not a son of disobedience anymore. You're not a son of darkness. You are a child of light. And so you don't act the way they act anymore. And throughout Scripture, darkness is used in this way to sort of describe where we've come from. Uh, spiritual ignorance is described as darkness. Sin is darkness. Um, and what he's saying is here, you need to walk and act like what you are. Verse 11, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Jesus said when Judas and, and the armies came to arrest him, he said, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, this is the way the people of the world act. And this is it's really startling if you think about it because we would look at many things that happen in our culture and, and the way that many unregenerate men act in public and we are sort of put back at, at the things that people do in public. I believe that we could discern from Scripture that behind that in the darkness, in the cover of uh, what we might call spiritual night, they're even worse than what they show themselves to be. If they will flaunt some type of sinful activity, underneath the cover of darkness, in, in the hour and the power of darkness, they're more evil than we even know. They will even, because the image of God is still in them, even, even wicked men will hide and cover up the most evil things in their hearts and their minds. There are some things... As Paul says, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. In 1 Corinthians, in the church discipline passage, Paul says not even pagans do the things that are happening. There are some things that even unregenerate men still recognize as shameful, and so they cover them up. Here's, this is the idea. Uh, an, an unregenerate person, when it comes to sinful things, maybe not all of them because they'll flaunt some of them, but there are some things that they'll try to cover up. They try to hide. They don't want anybody to know about it. They don't want to talk about it. Now, in Christian circles, we come together, and, we, and this is probably the, the bulk of the community that we surround ourselves with. Most of the people would at least give some lip service to Christianity. And so when it comes to being in public, they know how to put on that face. But in the dark... Even if it's the darkness of their own mind, they know they're hiding something. Now, when they get around believers, they, won't, they, they don't want to go down that route where that might come to light. Their job or what they're working at is to cover this up, to keep it concealed. In the company of Christians, if, if the, the conversations always have to stay vague because, and, and when questions are asked, answers have to stay vague because if it gets too specific, that's going to start pulling back the zipper and revealing the darkness that's inside. And so to, to maintain that facade, they, they have to keep everything covered. Everything is concealed. You can never get a straight answer out of, about anything because they're always trying to cover up. Now, as believers, we understand, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But here's the opposite side of it. Instead, 
Expose them. That's the Christian response to wickedness and sin. We don't cover it up. We expose it sometimes with our preaching, with our words. Sometimes it's just the lives that we live. The holiness in us is going to expose darkness. The, uh, the phrase I use a lot is when you flip on the lights, that's when the cockroaches scatter. That's when you're going to see them start scurrying because light has come into the room. A Christian evidences himself very often in his response to things. And Paul says in that text, again, this is just sort of an example of that truth. Don't do what you used to do, but not doing what you used to do is not enough. Do the opposite of what you used to do. You respond differently. When there's sin, you don't just sit idly by, and pretend it's not there. It's going to be exposed. It comes out. And this is a truth for the believer because being a Christian is not just deciding that you're going to be a part of a new system of activities or beliefs. Being a Christian is a reconstitution of your entire nature. This leads into what we talked about with regard to the familial disposition of a believer being adopted into the family of God. Our nature has changed there's been a work of God in us. And so nobody, we, we learn and there is a growth here. But even the youngest believer is going to start evidencing these just responding differently. Sure. Maybe not always immediately outward, but they're going to start noticing in their mind things are, their mind is not responding the way it used to. It's not titillated by the things of the world anymore. All of a sudden, that's, there, there's a sensitivity being developed and that's going to increase, increase more and more because of this work of God and our responses to various things. Again, the example I gave was that of sin. But even our responses to good things, blessed things, the things of God, tell us a lot about the condition of our hearts. Because a lot of times our responses, especially when they're quick, we don't have the time to calculate them. Now we have the opportunity from the house to church to begin thinking about, okay, how am I going to act? And how am I going to speak? And how am I going to carry myself? And kids, we're going to act a certain way because here we go and we're getting ourselves ready. But a lot of times in a, in a, uh, a, a natural reaction, a quick response, we don't have the time to orchestrate all of that. And very often that response that comes out tells us a lot more about our hearts than those things that we get to calculate and think through. It tells us the condition of our hearts, but even more so beyond that, it, it helps us to gauge the work of God in our hearts. God's doing something. Um, like Alex said, when we notice these things, when we, if we just stop and think, wait a second, we're all here on a Sunday morning. You know, we, we probably thought yesterday about the time change, and that was sort of important to us because we had a schedule to keep today. There are a lot of people that don't care if the time went back yesterday because they didn't have anything to do today. Thinking about things like that, it's not just that we would say, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm Christianizing. No, we say, God is doing something in me. I went to sleep last night and woke up still a believer. God's working. It helps us to analyze, engage that work of God in our hearts. But even as believers, we still have this tendency from time to time to respond wrongly, perhaps if there is a sin in our hearts or in our lives or in someone else, we can respond with laxity or careless indifference. And we'll notice that. Eventually, we're going to catch it and we're going to realize that we've responded wrongly. But there's always that tendency there. And that type of response reminds us there is still work to be done. I, I kind of picture it like God is always shaving off these calluses that sin has created over the years. But when He shaves those calluses off, what that reveals is tenderness and sensitivity underneath. To where the skin beneath the callus is actually more sensitive than the other skin that was, wasn't even calloused. God is working on us and, and makes us more and more tender to the ways of God. All of that to prove this point. If you're a Christian, one evidence of being born again is the way you respond to things. Now John, back to the Revelation, John has had a vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. And his response to this vision shows us something of the heart of John, but it goes beyond that. Because remember, this, this vision that he had was not to teach us what Jesus looks like, it was to teach us what he is like. So just to recap that, since we've been out 
a couple weeks. This one like a son of man was wearing a long robe and a golden sash. That teaches us of his position of official honor, that he's ready for the work that he's been given, the, the duty and the tasks at hand. Now, if you're a son of disobedience and a child of darkness and you're constantly trying to cover over sin, you don't want to come to this Christ because he's ready for work. You come to this Christ, he's dressed as a, as a, a royal official and a high priest. A lot of people don't want to come to this Christ because they know the high priest deals with sin. They want to keep their sin. John's had a vision of this Christ and it, and it, it evokes a response in him. He has hair that's white like wool, like snow, that points us to His eternal wisdom. A lot of people don't want to be in the presence of this Christ. They, even in the assembly, the church, the body of Christ, which is a means of grace where we use our gifts together to encourage one another as a body, a lot of people don't even like to come in, into that type of setting because even in that setting, as... as Astonishing as this is, by God's Spirit, the eternal wisdom of Christ is being volleyed, we could say, back and forth in the assembly. When we are eating lunch and we're, as brothers and sisters, opening the Scriptures and dealing with one another, Christ's eternal wisdom is going in and out and in and out of our hearts and our ears and our minds. And a lot of people can't stand that. They don't want to be around that. They want to cover up. They don't want that wisdom. They want to continue in their own wisdom. When Christ appears, this shows this one is eternally wise. He has eyes like a flame of fire that teach us of His probing omniscience. And again, people don't want to think about that. Even people who are unregenerate, they have some idea of God. They will say, oh yeah, God knows everything. And if you've been in very many Christian circles, you would probably even say, be able to use the word omniscience. And you would say, yeah, well He knows all things with a perfect knowledge. And that's a terrifying thing to people who are trying to cover up their sins. He knows it. As we've already heard, nothing gets by nothing is going to go unchecked. Probing omniscience, leave, leaving nothing out of His sight. That's terrifying to the sons of disobedience. His feet like burnished bronze, which teach us of His strength and the triumph of His proven holiness. Well, Unregenerate men don't want to be around that because that exposes more of their sin. He has a voice like many waters that teaches us of His overwhelming and overpowering majesty. Again, the unregenerate person doesn't want to be around that because they want to use their brain as an echo chamber to constantly try to convince themselves that they are okay. So they'll spit it in one ear, I'm fine. It bounces off inside their head, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Forget it, put it out, forget it, put it out. They don't want a voice like the voice of Christ that comes in and when He speaks effectually, drowns out all of that. And they have to say, I am wrong. It's a, if you are a son of disobedience, you don't want to be around this Christ. And when you are presented with this Christ, it's going to evoke a response. He's holding seven stars in his right hand, which told us that he gives his hand of strength and skill to uphold at least, and I left it vague, his churches, some representation of his churches. From his mouth there's a sharp two-edged sword which reminds us of the weapon with which he conquers, the preached gospel, the preached word. He has a face shining like the sun. All the fullness and the blessing of deity shines in the face of Christ. And if you are a son of disobedience, you don't want to be around this Christ. You're going to do everything you can to keep this Christ, His Word, His people at an arm's distance. You might even come on Sunday, but everything is like this. Stay back this far. Because as soon as it gets a little bit closer, it starts revealing, pulling back the covers of who you are. Every time Christ is presented, in some form or fashion, if it's in all of His glory or a little piece of His glory, it's going to start evoking responses. And we need to be very sensitive in our minds and our hearts of what kind of response comes out. When someone addresses a very specific sin and the first reaction is, how dare you? Or, or yeah, but so-and-so does this. Or, you don't know my situation. That's telling you a lot more about your heart than, than you probably want to be, than you probably want to know. 
So John responds to this vision. And that's what we're going to see in our text. He responds, and the Lord responds to John's response. I've broken it up into three headings. Number one, reaction and reassurance. Number two, commission and context. And number three, explanation and confirmation. Beginning at verse 17, reaction and reassurance. This would be verses 17 and 18. Watch how John responds to this vision. And then watch how Christ reassures John. John says, when I saw him. Now to try to, as much as we can, feel what John felt. Remember the I and the him. The I is John, the beloved apostle who lay on the breast of Jesus. The, the nearest of the twelve. More than likely had spent many years of his life prior to this in the physical presence of Jesus' mother. I imagine that they spent a lot of time discussing the things that Mary had stored up in her heart, a treasured in her heart. Was probably with her when she died. I don't know, but he was close. And the him is the one like a son of man, Jesus. The same Jesus that John knew. Same person, except now glorified and presented in majesty. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is not chummy. He doesn't give him a handshake. He doesn't give him a high five. He doesn't say it's about time we've been waiting. This re reaction is not uncommon. Isaiah pronounced a personal woe upon himself when he saw the pre-incarnate Christ, high lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. Ezekiel fell on his face. Daniel fell on his face. The question is, why would John respond this way? What, what's happening here to John? In Revelation chapter 19 verse 10, John says this with reference to the angel. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. In chapter 22, verse 8, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. He doesn't say that here. He doesn't say, I fell down to worship. He says, I fell down at his feet <clears throat> as though dead. Now, it's very easy to come to this passage as if this were chapter 1, verse 17 of the Re revelation of John the Apostle. And say, look at John. Notice his response. See how he acted? Application. Act like John. But this is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we focus our attention. We try to focus our attention on Christ. It was this revelation of the glorified Christ that evoked this response. And then now look how the glorified Christ responds to John's response. We're looking at Christ. Not necessarily John. Christ's actions of reassurance show us <clears throat> that this is not what he desired for John. Notice the text. I fell at his feet as though dead, but... Logical contrast. He does not affirm John's actions. He does not say, yeah, you better get down and stay down. He does not put his foot on the back of John and say, yes, I am the mighty king, and this is what my subjects do to me. John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but in contrast to my actions, he laid his right hand on me. Now remember, this is a vision. Jesus is not physically there. This is a vision. The right hand is the hand of strength and of power. He touches in this vision, he touches John, which reminds us of his compassion, his tenderness, his nearness toward, <clears throat> toward John, saying, Fear not. Now we know why John fell at, fell at his feet as though dead. He was afraid. He was not worshiping, he was afraid. He was literally petrified, paralyzed. There, we put these together now. John's Reaction to this revelation of Christ and then Christ's response to John's response, Christ's reassurance of John. We have horrifying majesty. 
If any of us came in contact with this Christ in this way, we would respond like this. We don't have to make that the application. It would be the application. Nobody told John, hey, this is how you act. This is just what happened. Horrifying majesty, tender compassion. Do not be afraid. The language, stop being afraid. Because remember, in verse 11, he's already been told to write. He's already been given a task and a duty, a service to perform for the churches. He can't write if he's laying at the feet of Christ as though dead. So then Christ comes in and, for lack of a better term, corrects John's reaction. Now he could do this in two ways. He could retract some of his glory. You know, whoa, sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll let that get away a little bit. Sorry, I'll put some of that back behind me. We'll, we'll go back to the way we used to be. Or again, he could have stepped on his back with heavy-handed authority and say, yeah, that's right. That's what you do in my presence. He doesn't do either of those. He doesn't retract. He doesn't lord this majesty over him. This is what's amazing. He actually gives him more revelation of who he is. Who he is and what he's done. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. This is who Christ is. The first and the last hearkens us back to chapter 1 verse 8 where we learn that the Lord God the Almighty is the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Here Jesus himself says, I am the first and the last. He's saying, I'm the beginning of all things, and I am the consummate end to which all things are working. I am the creator of all, the sustainer of all. I'm going to bring all things, or I'm going to sustain all things to the end for which I've predetermined them. This is God the Son, eternal as the Lord Almighty is eternal, of one being in essence with the Father. He's saying, I'm God. Now just think about it. He's revealed himself in all of his majesty. John falls down as though dead. Jesus says, John, don't be afraid. I'm God. Takes him even further into his being, revealing more of himself. The first and the last and the living one. Now at the end of verse 18, he's going to say... I died, and behold, I am alive. Here he's not saying, I am alive. He's saying, I'm the living one. This is a statement of ontology, of being. The living one over against the dead idols of all of the world. Psalm 96 and verse 5, For all of the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This, that's Him. He's there before John. He is the living one, and He is the source of life. We have our life and being from Him. He is life. John 1.4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 5.21, the Son gives life to whom He wills. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. John 6.51, I am the living bread. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just saying I'm alive. He is life. He is the living one. All life, physical life, spiritual life, it all comes from and flows through this one Christ. This is what he's saying. I am the living God. He's the one who has all life in himself because he is life. That's who he is. Then he explains what he's done. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now when he says, I died, well, that doesn't fit with deity. So that immediately points us to the incarnation. Only human flesh <clears throat> can die. God himself cannot die in his essence Christ took on flesh, suffered at the hands of men and of God. Remember, John was there when he died. This is a reference to his suffering and death in the place of sinners. I died and behold. Look. Behold. I am alive forevermore. No longer dead. This points us to the resurrection. Never to die again. 
He died in the place of sinners. He was raised for our justification. And then there's a reference to His ascension to power. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Or death and hell. When these things are side by side, I think it's perfectly fine to assume that the Hades here is a reference to the bad place. Sometimes it's sort of just general. But here this is death and hell. Mankind's greatest enemies. Christ has the keys. If you have the keys, you have the power and the authority to open and close. So here's what happens when men come in contact with God. When there's a real, true revelation of God that immediately exposes two problems. He's God, I'm not. Human frailty, I will die. He's holy, I'm not. I'm sin. What are the fears? I'm going to die and I deserve justice for my sin. I deserve punishment. In the presence of this one, I recognize I will die and I deserve punishment. Jesus says, John, don't be afraid. I've beaten death. I've got the keys. Don't be afraid of hell. I came. I died. I rose from the dead. I've defeated that for you as well. You do not have to be afraid. I have the keys of both of these to open and shut them as I please. And I'm on your side, as we heard in the call to worship. So in response to this vision, John is stricken with petrifying fear. But in response to John's response, Christ does not retract. He does not withdraw some of His glory. He reveals Himself more fully in a way that is for John. If that makes sense. In verses 13 to 16, we have what we might call the majestic splendor of the glorified Christ. But then here we have what I'm calling the mediatorial splendor of the glorified Christ. It wasn't that John's understanding of this Christ just went too far. I've seen too much. I'm, I'm, no, it was, it was that he hadn't gone far enough or he had not been brought far enough. He didn't need less of Christ. He needed more. He needed to know, needed to know that this Christ had died, had been raised had ascended to power, had the keys of death and hell, and that He was there for Him. And so we're reminded here in this first section that a true sight of Christ, when met with grace in a true believer, will produce humility. We are commanded in Scripture to humble ourselves. And humility comes when we see more of God in Christ in contrast with ourselves. When a believer has this vision of Christ, or has a true vision of Christ, it's not going to be like John's. Just a little glimpse, a portion of this. And like I said, I wished I could have preached a week on every one of these things in this description of Christ, but just one of them. When a believer gets a glimpse of just one of these things, it's going to produce humility, never laxity, Never indifference, never arrogance, never dismissal. Yeah, I've heard that before. No, a believer, when this type of thing is met with grace, it's going to produce humility. Oh, that's who Christ is. Well, I'm not that. And we are humbled in His presence. But we also see here that a true sight of Christ when met with remaining corruption can tend toward extreme debasement. There will come a day when we will see the glorified Christ and when He comes we will be like Him. We will be glorified in that instant. When He comes in glory, we are glorified in that instant and we won't respond like this. John is still in his corrupt flesh and when the, the revelation of Christ meets that remaining corruption even in a believer, it can tend towards extreme debasement. Grace will always beget more grace, but corruption is going to beget corruption. And so you have in the believer who is at once justified and yet a sinner, you have these two things warring inside of them. Well, the presentation of Christ, the, re the revelation of Christ meets both of them and both of them are going to react differently. And there's going to be a war even in our responses to the revelation of Christ. James Durham commenting on this passage, he says, our faith, and this is just a broad principle, our faith is ready to degenerate into presumption. We have that tendency. And our humility 
to fainting and despondency of spirit and our fear to discouragement, heartlessness, and distrust. Here's the principle he, he gives. Our corruption is ready to abuse anything. Even the graces that we receive, our corruption is going to try to twist them. And what we do, I'm afraid, is we think that the abuses of corruption are the fruit of grace. We confuse these responses. So we see John's response. John fell at his feet as though dead. I should fall at his feet as though dead. We apply that. We go too far. We walk in despondency, discouragement, heartlessness. And then we'll actually, in our minds, begin to boast arrogantly, I'm more abased than somebody else. We can't stand to see somebody else who's active and joyful and producing fruit in the Christian life and moving and acting and doing and moving and acting and doing. And all we can do is sit in pitiful despair having had a, an understanding of God, but we never go beyond that. We just stop at, oh yeah. And we stop. And so the remedy is not to retreat. Oh, I've just seen too much. The, re, the remedy is not to remain frozen. It's to go further. To press into a more clear understanding of Christ for you. This is the biblical pattern from the very beginning. It was dark. God said, let there be light. The children of Israel were in Egypt in bondage, and then they were brought to freedom. When we are born again, we are transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, the kingdom of light. When we preach the gospel, very often it follows this pattern, law and grace. Cut them and then heal them. There's, there's this back and forth. If we just get to one side, we've not gone far enough. John, when he falls at the feet of Christ as though dead, he got the one side. Christ comes to give him, to, to move him from step one to step two. And it is, this, on my papers in parentheses, I have this phrase, a Christ for us. It is a Christ for us that strengthens us and equips us for the tasks he's given. We can have an understanding of God that does step one, that drops us on our faces, but what are we going to do there? We have to get from there to the next step. And if we're ever to grow to maturity, we have to not only increase in the knowledge of God, but we must know God in Christ for us. We don't just have a God, we have a God in Christ. And we have a Christ for us. Christ, our Savior, Mediator, Prophet, priest, and king is God in the flesh. Christ died as a substitute for sinners. He rose again for sinners. He's conquered death, locks up hell on behalf of His people. The other side of that, the one who comforts and consoles us is God. The one who died is God. The one who was raised is God. The one who cares for every believer is God. The one who took flesh and sympathizes with us is God. We have to have both sides of this, this glorious person. And so the response to that type of servile fear is not retreat. It's pressing in further. Knowing God as He's most fully revealed in Christ. It's never retreat. It's never drawing back. It's never... I've just learned too much. I've learned so much of God that I'm just, I'm just going to lay here. Quote Durham again. He says, The solid cure of fear and fainting is to be acquainted with Christ as God. Ignorance of Christ is the ground of being anxious, impatient, and stupefied with faithless fears. In other words, you, you don't draw back. You go further. You press in further, reminding yourself that it's not just God. It's God in Christ. So John falls. Christ strengthens him with a touch. And Christ reveals more of who he is and what he's done. It's, it's like John falls and Christ comes closer. He doesn't back up. If you've ever watched any uh, professional fighting, you know, they'll, they'll very quickly wrap around each other. Well, if somebody, somebody that doesn't know what they're doing would say, why would you want to get closer? Well, if I get closer, they can't hit me. This is the idea. Christ comes in even closer to comfort and console John. Verse 19, we see the commission in context. First, there's the commission. Write 
therefore. Now that therefore points us back not to John's falling on his face as though dead. The, the ver therefore points back to this reality of who Christ is. In other words, John, get up. You've got a job to do. You've, you've got to write. Write, therefore. And what is John to write? It's this visionary revelation. The things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now there's clearly, in the language here, a past, present, and future uh, expanse of what's going to be revealed. Now some men try to take this, and then they'll go to different sections in the revelation, and they'll say, well, that's what's past, and that's what's present, and that's what's future. And they'll begin to draw these sort of artificial lines... The point is simply that this whole revelation, it, there are going to be aspects of past, present, and future. While we can't draw hard and fast lines yet, we'll have to get through the book to, to notice these things. But what we can say is that the revelation is not exclusively past. It's not exclusively present. And it's not exclusively future. Now, but again, where those lines are drawn, we'll see as we work our way through it. So the Lord reminds John of who he is, reminds him of who he's what he's done, and then he reminds him again of his duty. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And here we learn that it is from the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us that we serve him. That's why there's a therefore. No one is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That's, that's not true. Who's, who's the most heavenly minded person that's ever walked the earth? Christ. He came into the world to save sinners. He, he, he is the most earthly good and the most heavenly minded. If your understanding of God in Christ has paralyzed you, it's not that you went too far. Oh, I guess I'm so heavenly minded, I'm just no earth. No, you didn't go far enough. That was, that's the asceticism that has plagued the church from the very beginning. I've got to get up in a monastery because I'm so heavenly minded, I'm no earthly good. That's not, you're not gone far enough. If you're paralyzed, you're useless. And Christ didn't leave his body here to be useless. So this, when it comes to things like evangelism, using your gifts in the body, uh, the specific roles that we have as husband, wife, father, mother, young people... Whatever role we play in the church, very often I think we, we come to an understanding of the things of God. We only go far enough to paralyze us from accomplishing anything. I think our tendency might be, for some of us, to look back and just sort of reminisce about the good old days when we went about our Christianity carelessly frolicking into any activity, Christianizing anything without any care in the world. Well, that's not right either. So we've we got to keep moving. You learn of God. Don't let it paralyze you. Keep going. Pursue a greater knowledge of God as He is in Christ. So here's an example. Does your understanding of God make you afraid to evangelize because you imagine that God is going to stiff arm you and pour curses on your household because you stumbled through or stuttered through your gospel presentation? Sometimes I think our fear is more so a fear of man. But we might think, well, I just, I, just, I just can't get it right. I mean, I just can't do it. And so you're afraid. You're paralyzed. What do you do? You go to Christ. Think, just, just think of Him. Think of the compassion that He displayed to people who just made just some attempt to honor Him. We've, we've already heard. I mean, he, he had to walk out of the house with perfume all over his feet and his head. But she honored him. She was doing what she had. With, with what she, or she did what she could with what she had. He took on flesh. If you're a believer, he took on flesh and bled and died for you. He lives to make intercession for you. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench smoldering flaxes. If Jacob doesn't drive his sheep too hard, Christ is not going to drive his sheep too hard. He doesn't come behind us whipping us. How dare you stutter through your gospel presentation. He is a tender, compassionate shepherd and He does not desire to have us frozen in fear that we can't do anything. That's not Him. And if that's the, the picture you have, you've not gone far enough. Again, there is a step one and a step two and usually the pattern is a revelation of God puts you on your face. 
And I don't, I don't know that there is a, a, a time frame. You might be on your face for two weeks or two months or a year. Or, at some point, He's going to pick you back up and you will be ready for service. I think of Peter. Peter had to be brought very low. But Jesus didn't let him stay there. He asked him three times, Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? And, and Peter was aggravated that he asked him again. And he says, Lord, you know that I love you. Right, that's all that, that's all that matters, as we were talking the other day. Uh, you said it was R.C. Sproul when somebody was wrestling with their salvation. And he'd ask, well, do you love Christ as much as you should or, or as much as he deserves? No, of course not. Well, do you love him as much as you ought to love him? Well, of course not. Well, do you love him at all? Well, yeah. Okay, then. You can't love him enough to save you. The fact that you love Him at all is evidence He's working in you. If you love Him, it's because He first loved you. And if He first loved you, then He doesn't want to leave you in that pitiful state. He's going to walk with you. And we've seen in Galatians, Peter was not a perfect man. But Christ wasn't afraid all the way back in the Gospels to say, feed my sheep. Do it. Thirdly, Verse 20, explanation and confirmation. It was common throughout the earthly ministry of Christ for him to explain the mysteries and the parables to his disciples. He never let his disciples go in confusion. He would speak to the crowds in parables, but to his disciples privately he explained everything. Well, this is what he does in verse 20. First, there's an explanation. As for the mystery... He acknowledges that what John sees is not exactly what it appears to be. It's not what meets the eye. It is a mystery... John doesn't have to start looking for clues because Christ is going to explain the mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars, I'll read it. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now there is a lot of disagreement on what this phrase means, the angels of the seven churches. Most of the uh, proven guides fall on two sides. One, size, one side says the angels, the word is in the Greek messengers of the seven churches. Those, these are the uh, elders of these seven churches. The other side would say that the angels of the seven churches are a spiritual representation of each church. Now, I think both of those will work. The point that's being made, I believe, ultimately is the same. If you take this word angels to be referring to the elders, um, this would be the only place in the Revelation where this word is not used to, to reference a supernatural being, uh, an angel. If you take it to be messengers, again, why are the elders called messengers and not elders? Again, I think there are problems with with that, but there are problems on the other side. Why does the church have a representative angel? We know that the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve God's people. Ultimately, the seven stars in the right hand of Christ point us to the churches in some form. Either the church, a spiritual representation of the church, or the ministerial leaders of the church. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember the role of the church is like that of a lampstand to hold up the light of the testimony of Christ. And so when he explains this picture, he's simply confirming some truths that we've already seen. Christ holds the churches, whether it is corporately or ministerially in their leadership, in his right hand, his hand of strength and skill, he holds his churches. And he walks in the midst of his churches. He is with his churches. All that God is to us in Christ is for the good of his churches. Whether it's this startling vision of his majesty, the fullness of his deity, or now the completion of his work on our behalf, it's all for our good. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet... That's authority. And gave him as head over all things to the church. I always think it's funny when people go to a job interview and somebody says, well, they said I was overqualified. He gave him as head over all things to the church. Little bitty local church. Head over all things. I'm going to give you 
to the local churches. And inasmuch as we share in the spiritual unity and ministry of the body of Christ, we can be confident and assured of His continued presence with us and for us. So when the majesty and the holiness of God reveal corruptions in you, do not retreat. Run to Him. The answer is not less. The answer is more. You need a Christ. When your corruptions are revealed, you need a Savior. You need to know that God has come to you in a Christ. So very quickly, three points of application. Number one, as an individual, as families, as a church, we must always be growing in the knowledge of God. Not facts about God, but experiential, relational, understanding and comprehension of who He is, what He does, how He thinks, how He acts. In, in every situation, always be studying creation, study revelation, study the interactions of men, always watching and learning of God. Let, let these things teach you of God. Always be seeking the one who says, I reward the one who seeks me with a greater understanding of myself. He gives himself to that. He's not, again, he's not hiding. If you'll seek him, he reveals himself. And when he reveals himself, we boast only in the fact that we have been the recipients of a gracious understanding of God. Secondly, our understanding of God must be in and through Christ. It is Christ who reveals God to us most fully, most clearly. Christ brought God down to us. It is Christ who takes us back to God. To use the language, our knowledge of God must be tempered with, with a Christ. The Jews have a God. They don't have a Christ. They don't have a God in Christ. If we stop at just God, we're missing out on God in Christ. Christ given for us and all that God would have us to know of Himself as revealed in Christ and thirdly, let us glory in the God who's come down to us and lends His presence to us in a Christ, as we, we heard earlier. He, he lends His presence. The God of the universe says, I'll put my presence with my people. I will, I'll come to you and I'll be with you. But He goes even beyond that. I'm not just going to come down to you and be with you. I'm going to come down to you in a Christ. So I can sympathize with your weaknesses. So I can be tender. So that I can share in that solidarity. I mean, it would be great to have a God. Just, just to have Him as our God and, and us to be His people. That's, that's a, a wonder that we can't fathom. But to have a God in Christ, sympathetic, tender, sharing solidarity, who strengthens us for His service and recruits us into His service. We should be glorying in that. That we have not just a God, but a God in Christ. So let's go to Him in prayer. Before the throne of grace. And remember, God came down in Christ. So when we go into His presence, it, it is almost as it were, we, we come carrying a Christ. Our only way into His presence. But having the key, the boldness, because He's come to us in Christ.